When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Just before we get into the show today, I wanted to let you know that David has given a recent talk on disease modification in osteoarthritis. I'll include the link in the show notes if you want to give it a listen. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This week we have the privilege discussing osteoarthritis disease modification. Now, current management approaches for osteoarthritis are largely targeted to symptoms. One way to mitigate the epidemic of osteoarthritis is to modify both its structural progression and symptomatic consequences in tandem, a method known as disease modification, as distinct from symptom modification. These agents could potentially slow the speed of disease progression, completely halt it, or in an ideal world, reverse the disease and regenerate the target tissue. At present, despite a number of positive trials, there are no drugs that have garnered regulatory approval for this indication. Therapeutic development has been challenging, but there are many products in late stages of development that show extraordinary promise for what many consider the holy grail of disease management. There have been a lot of methodologic advances as well as use of novel trial designs that have assisted in overcoming many of the current technical challenges. And this purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this exciting area of disease modification. And we're joined by none other than Christophe Liddell. Now, Christophe is working as a translational medicine expert 
and his most recent position was as team lead in the Global Clinical Development Department in Merck Healthcare in Darmstadt, Germany. In this role, he was involved in design and execution of clinical studies from phase one to phase three. And he had special responsibility in the field of biomarker and imaging readouts in clinical studies, mainly in osteoarthritis. He contributed to the respective teams to analyze data, develop further stratification strategies based on biomarkers, including imaging, for studies in osteoarthritis. Christoph is trained as an immunologist with a PhD in immunopharmacology and immunotoxicology, and he's worked in different companies and in different countries. Over the, more than the last 15 years, he was part of project teams or a team leader in different projects for the discovery and development of therapies in osteoarthritis. Christoph is an internationally recognized scientist and has authored more than 50 scientific peer-reviewed publications and is co-inventor in more than 10 patents in the field of clinical strategies for osteoarthritis. Christoph is a core member of the Foundation of NIH Initiative for Validation and Qualification of Biomarkers and Imaging Techniques in Osteoarthritis. And he also started the Innovative Medicine Initiative for Approach, which is a European cohort study with approaches to qualifying imaging technologies as well as other biomarkers, and is the work package lead in this initiative. Christoph, welcome to the show. Good to see you from the other side of the world. That's a pleasure you could spend some, a little bit of time with me today. Thanks, David. Thanks for the introduction and very welcome uh, to participate here. Yeah, it's abso absolutely my pleasure. Now, before we get into the content of the show, any conflicts or disclosures that would be worthwhile revealing to the audience? Well, I'm a former employee of Merck uh, Healthcare, as you already mentioned in this, and I'm consulting to different companies in the field of osteoarthritis. And I don't know if this is really the uh, conflict of interest. I see it actually differently. Uh, I'm also working with different patient advocacy organizations like Rumor Netherlands, Arthritis Foundation UK and Arthritis Foundation US. Fantastic. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a conflict at all. I, th I think that would be an, a wonderful addition to the field. So <laughs> thoroughly <laughs> encourage you to continue giving your time and efforts and, and knowledge to those advocacy organizations in particular. Now, rather selfishly, I mean, I've obviously know you a little bit, but I'm very keen to get to know you a little bit better. As part of the start of the show, I usually probe you a little bit for you to reveal a few secrets. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Oh, wow. In five words? That's difficult. Uh, I'm normally talking too much, David. Uh, and uh, That's the point. That's the first word. I'm talking too much. Uh, second, I'm quite passionate about uh, the work, in, especially in the osteoarthritis field. Over the last years, uh, really uh, developed uh, different projects. I'm quite strong from time to time in wording, if I want to bring something through. I think it was Stefan Lohmander who called himself uh, Stobbert uh, a little bit. Uh, I think I'm in line here with uh, Stefan in, in this. And the last thing, I'm German by birth, but I see myself as a European mainly. Which is obviously very topical at the moment, given some of the challenges that the EU is facing right now. But I mean, I really, really appreciate how 
outspoken you are. And I must admit, I've never looked at you as stubborn, but I, I think I said the same thing to Stefan. I think you're direct and forthright. And I think sometimes people feel a little bit challenged by directness. But I think for those of us in the field where honesty and transparency is really important, I think that sort of behavior is really, really valuable. Now, I touched upon it a little bit in the introduction, and you're obviously in the, in the current, I guess, transition in your career. But I'm just wondering, at least professionally, can you just give me a, a rough sense of what it is that a typical day would entail? Typical day would entail, at the moment, quite a lot of teleconferences and preparations for the next steps with different compounds in development, where I have been and I'm still involved uh, in. It normally starts early in the morning, uh, for example, with Australia, and goes up to late in the evening, for example, with US West Coast uh, teleconferences, since most of these uh, developments are on a global basis. So quite a bit of interaction around the globe. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a wonderful set of scientists who usually collaborate pretty closely that has uh, been provided a, a tremendous network in this field. And I think it's by that collaboration, hopefully, that we'll actually break through some of the barriers that are there that are facing all of us. That's one of the points where I'm, uh, especially in osteoarthritis, passionate. One thing is we have these interactions with the with the patients quite a bit. That's normally, uh, as a PhD, you're a doctor, uh, you're an MD, okay, you see the patients. We don't see as a PhD too often the patients, but in osteoarthritis, we have quite a bit of direct interactions with the patients, patient advisory boards. We have, uh, you mentioned the IMI, the Innovative Medicine Initiative here in Europe. There's a patient council in this call, for example. And the other point is we have these interactions also between what we used to call competitors. So between the different companies, uh, since a lot of people, in, also in competition, want to bring something forward, uh, want to bring really disease modification uh, therapy forward to the patients. Not only a symptom modification, of course, uh, we also want to modify the symptoms, but really disease modification, so means uh, structure and symptoms to, to modify in the disease. And that's exciting to, to have this yeah, more collaborative uh, spirit, uh, even between companies. Yeah, there's so much that can be achieved pre-competitively for industry. And, uh, you yeah. know, one thing that I've definitely seen emerge over the last decade is a lot of industry coming together under different guises, you know, whether that be through the Osteoarthritis Research Society, you know, under the foundation of NIH auspices, uh, through approach, through, through lots of other interactions. But, you know, as, as we move forward, I think those interactions are going to be uh, more and more important, as are the interactions you were talking about before with patient engagement. Now, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you enjoy to do? Well, gardening is one thing, but my other private passion is uh, model boat building. I don't know if you have ever seen it, David. Maybe I should send you uh, some pictures. I'm building radio-controlled um, uh, model boats, uh, sailing ships and also uh, uh, motorized ships. And actually, I'm sitting in the basement right now and close, just behind my back, there is the area where I'm building the model boats. So that's another passion. 
apart from the passion for my two daughters and my wife. Uh, but that's, how should I say, a given fact. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. Now, in your workshop, how many boats do you usually have under construction at one time? And how, how big are the boats that you're talking about? So 150 uh, centimeters to 50, some smaller ones. I'm normally working on one boat and try to finish it, but a little bit like in li uh, in work life, ideas are coming during the build uh, for the for the next project. And if you ask my wife, our living room is pretty filled with boats, and so <laughs> I get some restrictions here from time to time. Oh, it's good to see your passion infiltrating the house, Christoph. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's get on to the topic of the day, which is obviously disease modification. I guess in the first instance, just one thing I'd, I think would be really important to establish is what is disease modification? That's a hot topic, David, uh, for, for the definition. What I see as disease modification means a structural, so really a, a repairing or at least halting the current status of the joint and at the same time look that the joint is becoming uh, more functional, less painful in this. So the combination of both. That's my personal definition. Maybe it's a definition a lot of people can sign on. Regulatory-wise, so the health authorities, uh, it's a little bit different, at least uh, recently with some recent guidelines. They are more talking about uh, joint survival, if I can use this uh, terminology. So really prevention of total knee replacements or uh, any surgery in this. And that's also one of the points where I think industry overall is struggling with uh, in, in uh, overall setting. We heard Stefan Lohmann with early osteoarthritis and I'm really also very passionate uh, about early osteoarthritis, but in the current regulatory environment, I allow myself to, to give this statement. It's simply not possible to develop in an easy way or even in a complicated way to develop compounds for this early osteoarthritis. The authorities are shooting uh, towards yeah, uh, prevention of joint replacement surgery and really late stage uh, osteoarthritis. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you're meaning with your comments about early osteoarthritis, but I'm just wondering, you know, obviously the time course between um, injury, for example, and the development of symptomatic radiographic disease, let alone uh, the time course it would take to get to joint replacement is well beyond the patent life of most uh, industry products. Is that, is that the major concern if we're waiting 15 to 20 years to see the end point of interest? Today, we have the situation that we wait until the joint is really gone or severely damaged. Uh, you mentioned the ACL, for example, 20 years after ACL, you have the severe lesions in the cartilage or in the joint overall. I, I tend to not only look at cartilage, uh, but uh, the joint as an organ, as a whole organ, but we cannot do too much, uh, and that's what I understand uh, with early osteoarthritis, we cannot do too much, apart from an ACL repair, for example, we cannot do too much to prevent this disease journey towards, a, a, yeah, I call it joint death, the final, finally joint replacement surgery in this. That's what I in, intended with early osteoarthritis, so really early intervention for regenerative things. 
apart from physiotherapy, weight loss, and they, they are quite, uh, quite useful. It's slowing down the disease, but it's not really modifying the disease, I would say. Yeah, so obviously it's more of a prevention than a, than a modification perspective. Yeah. Now, let's, let's focus a little bit on those that have, for example, symptomatic radiographic disease, so what we currently consider as, as osteoarthritis. Where are we at with achieving uh, disease modification and what are some of the more advanced candidates and what stage of development are they at? The most advanced currently are in, in the transition phase two, phase three uh, clinical trials. Samomet with Lorezi Vivint, obviously strange names with, with the compound. So that's the, uh, for those, of, those people that want to look it up, that's a WINT inhibitor made by Samumed. Yep, that uh, has recently terminated one phase three. They have additional ongoing phase two. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, they will start uh, additional phase three. It's wind pathway in inhibitor, only a little bit of explanation. That's mainly something modifying on the bone, less on the cartilage. So really the under underlying bone modifications, a disease modifications are affected with, uh, with this. That's to the best of my knowledge, the most advanced in phase three. We have some Adam TS5 inhibitors. That's an acrican. Acrican is one of the major parts of cartilage. And in osteoarthritis, this major part of the cartilage is degradated by certain proteins, enzymes that are really cutting down this acrican. And we have currently two inhibitors in clinical development, in one in phase one, the other one in phase two. The Galapagos Servier, that's an oral one. Oh, by the way, the Lorezi Vivint is an intra-article therapy. So it's injected into the joint. Servier Galapagos with their Adam TS5 inhibitor, uh, that's an oral compound. They just finished uh, phase two, and I think the whole community is eager to learn what are the results. And there's another one that's a so-called nanobody, uh, that's from Merck, and that's in phase one. So then we have, right to my heart, as most in the community know, we have sprefamine, uh, that's a recombinant growth factor. It's actually, its mode of action is it brings the cells in the cartilage to grow and regenerate at least what we have seen uh, in the clinical trials and regenerate cartilage uh, in this. That's phase two finished and all the other assets are earlier, much uh, earlier in phase one in this. And I'm, yeah, well, we should touch also on the, the pain modification, the strong pain modification, the anti-NGFs, uh, nerve growth factors in this. But for me, they are not really disease modifying drugs since they are modifying only the symptoms and they are also in phase three. And what we'll do is in the show notes, I'll include a link, hopefully to a YouTube clip of a recent talk that gives an overview of these agents, but also definitely to a Wikipedia page that has a list of the various agents, their targets, and their respective stages of development. Just, but just to briefly summarize what Christoph's saying, they have different mechanisms of action. They often have different routes in terms of the delivery, whether it be oral injected into the joint. And they are oftentimes at different stages of disease development. Now, for those of you who are familiar with COVID, you're familiar with that the phase three is a pivotal trial that comes just before um, an agent goes through to regulatory approval. Now, Christoph, 
Working on the assumption that one or more of these agents gets through phase three, what are we dependent on from a patient perspective in terms of getting access to these sorts of products? What are the next steps beyond a positive trial? The regulatory approval is the first hurdle, David. It's uh, really coming to the point that I think the whole OA industry community or develop, uh, compound developing uh, community is quite a little bit struggling with, with the hurdles from authority. It means we have to demonstrate the symptom modification. That's one of the major focus. The structure modification is not in, in the major focus. So for the authorities, apart from joint survival, so prevention of uh, total knee replacement, for example, and that's all around the globe. It's not only US, it's also in Europe in this. And I see this as a hurdle uh, to bring this forward to, to, the, uh, to the patients, the, the compounds. Interesting enough, I mentioned it in the beginning, I'm also working with patient advocacy and I also have worked, for example, with Arthritis Foundation, with the voice of the patient. Uh, that's a very nice white paper with summaries. And what we continuously hear also in, in patient advisory boards that we have had our compounds, where we have asked the, the patients, what are they expecting? What do they think? They get uh, confidential information uh, of compounds and can judge on this. And what we hear a lot of times, and maybe you as a doctor or the patients overall can uh, even better voice this, what we hear continuously, a lot of people with osteoarthritis, with uh, symptomatic radiographic osteoarthritis can cope to the best uh, with, with their symptoms. There are painkillers, there are anti-inflammatory drugs around. I think every patient, at least in advanced stage, knows about this and knows also about the, the side effects and the, the whole thing. I can also talk for myself. Since I'm also a patient, David knows it. I also have osteoarthritis, even progressive uh, osteoarthritis. So pain can be plus minus controlled. Nobody at the moment can control the structure to the full extent, uh, apart from some braces or something like this. And I think that's one of the big, biggest hurdles, that some, to bring something to the patients while the, the regulated environment is asking uh, for much more in, in the overall setting. Yeah, and just to, I guess, recap a couple of really important points that Christoph's made there is that from the viewpoint of structural modification in and of itself, a number of the agents that Christoph has touched upon have demonstrated the capacity to modify structure, but unfortunately, with the pre-specified design, and there I would include Spree Furman in that category, with the design that originally was set out, they didn't demonstrate concomitant symptom improvement, but have mm -hmm. subsequently gone on and done some further analyses where they have demonstrated in an at-risk population both symptom and structural benefit. And so for the regulatory approval to get passed, you need to have uh, some demonstration together. And we're going to come back to the total joint replacement, which is a really high bar to set from the viewpoint of trial design. I mean, from, from the viewpoint of having regulatory approval, so you'd have the positive phase three trial, you then get to the regulators, hopefully they would approve, approve the product. But then before patients get it, given this is a, a new group of agents, ultimately we'd probably need to create both a new market in addition to disseminating that knowledge. Now, big next question, and you've been in this field long enough to have seen some of these lessons learned. 
we've seen a lot of negative trials. So by a negative trial, I'm talking about a trial that's failed to meet its primary endpoint, what we call a negative trial. What do you think are the most important lessons that we've learned from that? And very happy to go into the total knee replacement saga as part of that, but you may not want to do it there. Well, uh, we can touch on this um, later on. Actually, it's a quite interesting topic with the total knee replacement as an endpoint in a clinical trial, but it's very challenging also. Um, so let's start with this. That's really one of the lessons learned. Around the world, all the healthcare systems are different. And total knee replacement in Australia uh, or total knee replacement in, in Germany is a different story. It depends really on, on the healthcare systems and the reimbursement in, uh, systems. So that's a challenging. What I see as the major point of clinical trial failures is the desire of the companies to treat the whole OA population. Uh, not to select the patient. Every patient, in my view, belongs to a different category. In most cases, not two patients are the same, but a lot of approaches in the past, especially the failed clinical trials, were looking in uh, what I used to call all-comer population means you have a little bit of an x-ray, the patients have pain, and here we are, uh, you included in the trial. And that's one of the points where I see the biggest failure, not looking in detail and diagnose the patient in a better way. Give you an example, some inflammatory parameters could be changed. You have a swollen knee, you have synovitis, that's one patient population. The other one has degradation of the cartilage in the joint uh, quite a bit. I see this as a different population. So that what I think for the, f uh, for the future, and we see this in all compounds in development, more and more companies uh, are trying to select the right patients. You mentioned the sprefamine uh, data. Uh, I can allude to this, uh, that's published. You can find it also in, uh, on the web in this. If you look in the all-comer population, there is structural modification, yes. Uh, there is no symptom modification over placebo. And David, uh, you mentioned it before, there was no uh, symptom modification. No, all patients were becoming better, but uh, spifamine was not better in the all-comer population than the placebo patients. And that's one of the requirements regulatory-wise. In a subgroup, roughly one-third of the patients in the trial, there is a symptom modification and an even stronger structure uh, modification. So this, in my view, would be the patient population to select, to diagnose, <coughs> and then treat with sprefamine. And that's not only for sprefamine. Uh, we mentioned the Samomate compound. They are going for unilateral disease since they learned the all-comer population is a minimal, only a minimal effect. Uh, they have also looked in subgroups. The Galapagos Servier, the Adams uh, inhibitor, is also looking for subgroups of patients uh, with elevated biomarker levels, for example, uh, in this. And uh, some other compounds like uh, catepsin inhibitors, Medivir, for example, that's also more bone-related. Uh, and they are looking also for biomarkers for bone in a certain way to diagnose and select the right patients for the compound not going for the all-comer population. And like I said, I see the, all, the use of all-comer population, simply radiograph pain uh, was leading to a lot of failures. 
It's a great explanation and, you know, a really big call out to the importance of targeting patients appropriately according to their um, mechanism or phenotype of disease and, and identifying specific subgroups who may be more suitable to specific agents. And some of the other reasons that have come about that trials have failed have included side effect profiles, and there are particularly thinking about matrix metalloproteinase inhibitors. The strong structure symptom discordance, so that is basically the difference between a person's symptom or pain experience and what their x-ray shows. What Chris was alluding to before, historically there's been a lot of interest in taking all comers, including people who've got disease in both knees versus probably a better targeted population would be those that have disease in one knee. And um, as Christoph mentioned, disentangling benefits from placebo effects has been really hard. We've treated disease in animals and cured disease in animals hundreds and hundreds of times. But unfortunately, the animal disease is often not very similar to the human disease. And so it's failed, failed to translate. And I guess really importantly, and this is something that I think has come out from the subgroup analyses that Christoph was talking about there in Spree Furman, if, if you recruit a population of people whose x-rays don't progress, you're not going to find an effect. Now, with all of that knowledge, we've gained a lot. And I think the field has advanced a lot by virtue of all of those negative trials. But on the back of that, what do you think disease-modifying agents of the future will actually look like as a consequence of those trials? I see a big future in local therapies. Uh, you touched on, uh, uh, upon the side effect, since uh, in, in most cases, let's face the brutal facts, osteoarthritis uh, is not an, a disease of young people. It's a disease of an age population. So there are a lot of comorbidities already around. We talk about diabetes, cardiovascular and what have you. So the side effect is really a topic in this. And I see the local therapies as, <laughs> as hard as it is to get a needle in your, in your joint, if it's knee or hip. But it's really uh, to keep the compound uh, in, in the joint, in the organ you want to treat. That's one, uh, one thing. And then we will get repeated uh, cycles of treatment. That's what I envisage. It's not to take a, a pill or get an injection and then bye-bye disease. Um, that's not going to work with osteoarthritis. It's a chronic disease. So there will be chronic treatment uh, in this. I don't know if, if this is answering your question, uh, David, but uh, it's very difficult based on the different mode of actions and uh, different types of patients to come up with a generalized uh, theme. One of the other topics that I'd be keen for you to just expand on is, you know, historically we've, we've often focused very much on one particular mechanism. So for example, anabolic effects in cartilage. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that that may not necessarily be strongly aligned with a person's symptom experience. Um, and that there are other structural features, particularly you know, inflammation in the joint. So what we might call synovitis or, or swelling and effusion in the joint or changes in the bone. But, you know, historically, again, we've targeted one mechanism that may be just around anabolism or growth effects in cartilage. Is there potential, do you think, for combination agents here that might target both anabolic effects in cartilage and reduce inflammation, for example? 
we strongly need to think about uh, combination therapies uh, to treat the different things in the joint. At least the compounds I'm aware of are targeting normally uh, one particular part of the joint, uh, for example, cartilage, for example, bone or inflammation, uh, synovitis in this, but they are not treating uh, the, the whole joint. So combination or intermittent therapy. Intermittent therapy, what I intend is get an injection that is working on your cartilage. And then maybe a month apart, you get an injection that is, uh, that is working uh, on the bone uh, part uh, in this or on the inflammation part. Also, the combination with oral, uh, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and an anabolic or an anti-catabolic agents, I see this uh, as a given. Since, like I said, you cannot treat with one compound all the effects in the joint. No, that's, that's fantastic. Now, we've also learned a lot about how to design trials from the trials that have gone heretofore. What do you think the trials of the future might look like on the back of what we've learned? I think we will see in, in the future more selection of the right patients, uh, like I alluded already to, with a little bit more, uh, and not only a little bit, with more diagnostic upfront. Means, on the other hand, and uh, that's more the patient perspective, that you are invited, you want to participate in the trial, but you are excluded since you are not fulfilling the profile. And that's an ethical problem in, in my viewpoint. And we will see longer trials, even longer uh, than uh, today. Since if we talk about structural modification, we cannot expect that we get in 12 or 16 weeks, like with the symptom modification, also a structure modification. We need half year, one year or two years of treatment to see, even with highly sophisticated methods like MRI or something, to see the structure modification, uh, really. And then the discordance, you mentioned it, uh, between structure and symptoms. In my view, one cannot expect that you modify uh, the structure that has been in disease stage uh, in osteoarthritis patients, in disease stage for the last 20 years, you cannot expect that a structure modification is immediately leading to a symptom modification. So you need time and that's um, leading to longer clinical trials, what I see in the future. So better selection of the patients, longer trials uh, and use of different methods to monitor the different disease modifications. Yeah, and just to briefly recap, I mean, just to emphasize the importance of what Christoph's saying there, particularly around targeting specific phenotypes or subgroups of people and recruiting those specific subgroups based on the mechanism of action of your drug. And just recapping something you were talking about before with regards to total joint replacement as an outcome in trials. Intuitively, it makes sense. The challenge is the frequency with which that endpoint happens and the variability in the population, because as Christoph explained, in large part, that's determined by uh, the healthcare system, a person's insurance status, concurrent comorbidities. And even in you know, general circumstances, the lifetime natural history or risk of a joint replacement is about one in 10. And the conversion rate in a person that has symptomatic x-ray disease is in the order of about 1% per year. So it's a very infrequent outcome, which makes powering um, and designing clinical trials incredibly hard. And then another evolution that's happening is, you know, just advances in measuring biomarkers, which are more responsive, more valid, um, and hopefully make for more efficient trials. And then 
some advances in the way we can hopefully diminish placebo responses by designing trials better. Now, Christoph, what do you think are the most pressing research needs in this field? First of all, one of the major points I see, and being more the translational person, is to better look uh, in a translation from our animal models that we are using in the lab to the patients. That's one of the most pressing. Um, the animals, let's not forget, they are walking on four legs. We are walking on two legs. And that's one of the first things that's making a big difference. And if we talk about a rodent model, so mouse or rat model, they have much better capacity to regenerate uh, their tissues than we have. They have also a lifespan that's a little bit shorter than uh, our lifespan in, in this. So I see the most pressing thing in, in the research in the translationability of the, of the results we obtain in our models. We need to have a closer look in, in the mode of action and describe the mode of action of the different compounds to the best uh, that we can. Also in order to select the right biomarkers then for the clinical trials. And then one most pressing, and that has already started, I must say, one of for me straight to my heart is have a better involvement of the patients. Don't rely only on, on the doctor's judgment, but really ask the patient what they want to have and how do they feel. That's for me, should be part of, the, of a more thorough diagnosis and selection of the patients. So listen to the patients, listen what they want to have. I mentioned it before, maybe I think they can cope uh, in an easy or not so easy way with the symptoms, but they have a severe problem if they are coming every year to the, to the orthopedic or to the rheumatologist and get the notice, oh yeah, your joint has uh, further progressed uh, towards the total joint replacement or what have you. That's for me the, the two topics, translational and involvement of the patients. You know, wonderful and thoughtful advice and, you know, thoroughly agree with all of what you said, particularly with regards thinking a little bit more carefully about what animal models we use and how well they do translate to the human disease. Um, but particularly, you know, the strong involvement of patients in, in all of what we, what we should do and not just paying heed to the, uh, the silly academics like me, Christoph. Um, <laughs> Are there any patient-friendly resources or links that you'd like to share that might shed further light on this complicated area? For the IMI, we can share the links for the IMI, the, the, uh, the approach. There is this patient council and on the web page, the patient council is also announcing there's a newsletter and something like this. They are currently preparing even a, a publications or two publications, if I'm not wrong, uh, with their experience in this. So since I'm in, in the IMI and uh, one of the work package leads, that's one point. What I think also uh, as a reading, maybe it's trivial, but um, there are some web pages like, I, I don't know if everybody is aware of Heliao, that's a US page. It's a series uh, of rheumatology. And there's quite a bit of osteoarthritis uh, also coming in a language that's readable uh, with the links also then to the publications. And that sometimes could be very useful. To my surprise, I must say, but that's what we also learned in the patient advisory boards. People want to have the scientific literature also, although 
maybe sometimes we write our papers in a way that are not easy to understand, even for academics in this. But to have the, the source available in case you want to have further information. These are two examples in this. Then, sure enough, the Arthritis Foundation, so Arthritis Foundation UK or US, with their web pages. And I think also in overall patient engagement settings or patient advocacy, there are quite a bit of web pages around. I think, and now David, you should become red. I think what you are doing there in Australia is a great job with uh, the, the continuous uh, education. We don't have this all over the world. It's a little bit something particular what you have built up there. I like it very much. I like it very much uh, since it's really bringing something in terms of knowledge to patients and maybe even to the relatives of patients, let's not forget this, uh, since we have also the social burden. If you have a patient uh, that has severe osteoarthritis, painful osteoarthritis in this, I think these kind of things you can find. Specific links, yes, um, we can provide, I can provide some of, uh, of the links, but I think if one is looking by using a, a search engine, you find today a lot of things that could be quite useful. And like I said, what I like most is if you can link it to scientific information, to have the possibility to verify what is written there on the web. That's superb. Thanks, Christoph. And what we might do is get a couple of those links from you, particularly the ones that you mentioned there about uh, both Helio and, and also the links that you suggested in, mm -hmm. the, in the approach cohort. Now, is there anything that I should have asked that I forgot to? No, I think we touched on uh, a lot of things. Uh, we touched even on total knee replacement and uh, as a potential outcome uh, in this. Like I said, uh, that's currently becoming more and more uh, a focus. Also from the authorities, they really ask for joint survival uh, in this. Most probably also because the costs are going up like hell uh, for, for these surgeries in, in this. And that's maybe one topic, David, about the costs, healthcare costs, health economic, that's also something one should not forget. And that's, uh, in my view, also touching on industry to not come up with uh, therapies that cost uh, ten thousands of uh, US or Australian uh, dollars or even Euro, but a reasonable price in, in order to cure or disease modify uh, such a chronic disease since we are not talking about one shot like i mentioned before it's a, it's a longer treatment yeah and i you know i think a really important comment there and it was one thing i learned today so there's an agent called canakinumab that has been developed by novartis that was tested in in a joint injection a number of years ago but more recently showed in a heart trial called Cantos <laughs> that after about four years of regular injections of this agent, which costs in the order of about 70,000 US per year uh, per person, that it reduced joint replacements by about half. But when you think that one joint replacement probably costs about twenty dollars to $30,000 and you're giving an agent that costs about $70,000 per year, uh, the cost maths just didn't didn't rub up. Anyway, it was a really interesting trial and you know potentially mechanistically really important, but from a cost perspective, probably not going to work. Now just going to get into a little bit more questions around Christoph, but why do you do what you do? 
What motivates you? <laughs> you have heard it during our chat here. Uh, I'm really uh, passionate. I really, over the years, I'm working in osteoarthritis or in rheumatology overall. I learned to be really uh, passionate uh, to bring something forward to the market, to the patients uh, in this. And I learned also that it could be fun. And that's a very important uh, thing. Could be fun if the listeners uh, have heard us and you are not cutting this out. Uh, they, they will hear that uh, the two of us are really laughing from time to time. And that's uh, not only David and me, but uh, it's in the whole community. And that's one of the, the other things, uh, to have fun, uh, passion, to bring something forward uh, and having fun at the same time. Yeah, no, I really, I share your enthusiasm. I've loved spending time with you over the years and really applaud your passion and hope we can continue to work together. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I would love to have on the billboard a huge classic J-class sailing boat <laughs> and uh, me at the helm and the family on board having a good time. So a huge sailing boat uh, in the wind, driving through the Great uh, Barrier, close Australia and visiting Sydney uh, afterwards. You're welcome anytime, Christoph. I hope, I hope to be uh, on that boat with you at some point. Great Barrier Reef sounds wonderful. Now, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom you'd like to give to people who have osteoarthritis? try to control it as much as possible, not uh, via the pain medication, but uh, try to control it by um, the usual things. Uh, it sounds trivial, but a little bit of weight loss, doing some exercise, uh, use some things like a brace. So non-invasive uh, at the current stage. It sounds a little bit strange. Uh, we have talked about drug development, but now I'm coming with a brace. But I don't think we have a current in the current situation a lot of chances uh, in this. And yeah, sitting in the chair uh, at home or lying on the sofa because the, your knee hurts does not bring the disease to a stop or to a halt. At least in my personal experience, uh, experience, it's becoming worse if you don't exercise, if you don't move your joints. No, I think definitely the, the remedies there in terms of use it or lose it and being remaining active are really, really important. Yep. Now, Christoph. Thank you so much for your time. Wonderful to have a chance to have a chat with you and uh, really appreciate your sharing your insights and thoughts for, for us today. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. Thank you. Thanks so for listening for to listening. Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter. Edited by Vicky Duong. Music produced by Jordan Hunter.
The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.